conviction overturned. Those words cut through social media last week after the Pennsylvania Supreme Court freed Bill Cosby from prison. He was there on an indecent assault conviction, a conviction that was a significant moment for the Me Too movement. The judges said it was about justice denied for Cosby, that his constitutional due process rights were violated. But that has sexual assault survivors worldwide asking, what about justice for us? I'm Gustavo Arellano. You're listening to The Times, daily news from the LA Times. Today's July 7th, 2021. Canada finally reopens its border with the United States. 75% of reported disputes on commercial airlines over mask mandates, reports the Federal Aviation Administration. And gas prices are expected to rise in the U.S. by 20 cents this August. Anyone have a Greyhound pass I could borrow? Today, we check in with the host of the LA Times podcast, Chasing Cosby, who spoke after Cosby's release with women who've accused Cosby of sexual assault in the past. And we also speak with a lawyer who has long gone after sexual predators and institutions that protect them. My experience with prosecutors, and there's some notable exceptions, is that they won't charge these cases unless it's an absolute lock. Before we begin, A warning to our listeners that this episode will go into details of alleged sexual assaults. In the case of Bill Cosby, the Pennsylvania Supreme Court wrote that prosecutors had promised him legal immunity from future criminal charges in exchange for testifying in a 2006 civil lawsuit. In it, plaintiff Andrea Constand alleged Cosby had drugged and assaulted her, and the civil suit was settled. A new district attorney then decided to prosecute Cosby on those charges in 2016, and a jury found him guilty of indecent assault against Constand. The Pennsylvania Supreme Court said that prosecution violated the agreement made by the prior DA. So on June 30th, Cosby was released from prison and able to go home. He flashed a V for victory sign as he reached his front door, greeted by supporters. We love you, Mr. Cosby! We love you so much! Here's a spokesperson, Andrew Wyatt. We want to thank the Pennsylvania State Supreme Court, as I mentioned earlier, for reviewing Mr. Cosby's appeal, but also seeing the light, seeing the lies, seeing that Mr. Cosby had immunity. Cosby's accusers, of course, felt differently. Nikki Weisensee-Egan is the author of the book, Chasing Cosby, and the host of the LA Times podcast of the same name. She interviewed four of Cosby's alleged victims after Bill Cosby's release. You know, there's a range of emotions. Um, Some talked about crying all night, and they said it was like a gut punch. Um, when I talked to PJ Mastin the next day, uh, she, she was just like her, she said her face was swollen from crying. Um, Lily Bernard said it was like a punch to the stomach. She'd been crying all night. Um, Therese Serenis, uh, she was one of the original Jane Doe's that came forward in 2005. You know, she's talked about being scared for the first time in three years because Cosby would also intimidate them by threatening to sue them if they said anything about him. Um, and she's one of the ones that actually won the defamation lawsuit against him. So uh, Tamara Green was a little more practical. She's an attorney, and she kind of understands the legal system. I mean, her view, too, is he served. He didn't get off scot-free. He served three years, um, and that's not, I mean, and his sentence was three to ten years. So he got the, you know, he did almost the minimum, and prison changes you. However, you know, he had just been denied parole because he wasn't cooperating in prison. He was designated a sexually violent predator, and he was supposed to be going to treatment for it, and he wouldn't go because he said, I'm innocent. 
And, and that's what the, the sad thing about all this is, is if he just acknowledged he made mistakes, that he did things he's not proud of and he was sorry for them, it would, it would, he could move on with the rest of his life and enjoy the rest of his life. And he, there could be some healing with some of these survivors. But he's not doing that. And, that, and this, this whole thing just reeks. This Supreme Court decision makes no legal sense whatsoever. Bill Cosby became a pop culture powerhouse, an actor, an author, a comedian, a black man succeeding in a white world. So when did you start to hear rumors about what Cosby was doing to some women? You know, I never heard any rumors until the, the story broke on the news in Philadelphia on January 20, 2005, that he'd been accused of drugging and sexually and assaulting a woman who who had worked at Temple University. And I had grown up, I was a fan of The Cosby Show. Um, I watched Fat Albert and The Cosby Kids on Saturday morning cartoons. So I was really shocked. And my reaction was not the cause because this just wasn't the image I had of him in my head. But as a journalist, your job is to separate your personal feelings from your job. And so I set my personal feelings aside and I just set out to find out the truth. And what's interesting during Cosby's career, people say, oh, we had no clue. How could he of all people could have done it? But he was making jokes as far back as the 70s about drugging women. And yet there was never any public backlash against him. This was common knowledge in Hollywood for decades that he was doing this to women. He would approach an agent and say, I want to meet such and such. And the agent would set up the call and then he would groom them. Then he would get on the phone with their parents and groom the parents. And then when he had them gain their trust and he got the girl alone in a room, he would drug and sexually assault them. I mean, he had a, vi a variety of ways he attained his victims, but the, the common thread is he had many, many, many enablers. Um, the William Morris Agency, when it, the, his agent, Tom Elias, at the William Morris Agency, one of his victims was uh, Elias's assistant. And she um, testified at the first trial, and she said Cosby was probably the most powerful client of William Morris at the time this happened to her, which was around 1990. And the, he even had his own dedicated phone line that he called into William Morris when he called. You've spoken to Andrea Constand, and she's shared her story many times. Can you share what happened to her? I just want to get a little background on her, too, so people understand. And this because this is what made me start finding her credible um, back in 2005. Andrea was one of the top high school players and um, basketball players in Canada. She was recruited by 50 to 60 colleges in the U.S. And she dreamed of being in the WNBA. And when it became clear those dreams of playing in the WNBA weren't going to happen, she got this call from Don Staley, who was the basketball coach for the women's basketball team at Temple University. And Don asked her to be her director of operations. So that's how Andrea came to live in Philly in late 2002. And Cosby was on the board of trustees of Temple University and was one of its most famous alum, although he like got one of those honorary degrees because he didn't actually finish there. And a donor introduced him to Andrea at a basketball game. And he followed up with that with a phone call. And he became her mentor and her friend. I mean, she looked at him like a grandfather figure because he's 10 years older than her own father. And when the deposition, Cosby's deposition got released, he lays out this whole thing and she'd been to dinner at his house. Andrea didn't take prescription medications or anything. She's very into holistic therapies, and they had talked about that. And so he told her, he could tell she was stressed, and she told him she was stressed. So he said, um, here, I'll get you something for that. And she said, what are they? And he said, herbal medication. And she said, okay, and because she trusted him. And she took it, and within 20 minutes, she's wobbly, 
Um, she, he, he, she's having a hard time like standing. He pick, he gets her up and he escorts her over to the couch um, and lays her down. And she's frozen. She can't move. She can't speak. She can't do anything. And he sexually assaults her. Cosby, through his spokesperson, Andrew Wyatt, denies these allegations. Here's Wyatt in 2017. Mr. Cosby has vehemently denied all of those allegations. And that's all that I can say and speak on, but he has vehemently denied those allegations. We'll have more after this break. Nikki, what happened with Andre Consent is similar to other stories that Cosby accusers have shared with you. The taking of the pills, the victims feel woozy, and then an alleged sexual assault. That's a story that dozens of women have told again and again. Cosby, by the way, has always maintained any such encounters were consensual. There's just so many things. When you talk about enablers, there were a lot of places, these hotels and um, restaurants and things like that, where somebody was procuring the drug for him because they were the ones who would bring it to the table. And they had to have known um, that this wasn't, you know, just a drink. Yeah, totally. You know, and the other pattern was, as I said, he would go to their agents and he would say, I want to mentor X, Y, and Z. That's even what happened with Janice Dickinson. The supermodel. Yeah, and he agrees to meet with her and it, it is just, and then he drugged and sexually assaulted her. And she wanted to put that in her 2002 memoir, but Judith Regan testified about this at the second trial. They made her take it out because, as Judith said... And Judith, of course, being a famous publisher. Yes. Cosby was known as being very litigious in the publishing industry. And while you you would win a lawsuit like that, you'd spend millions defending it. And so they made her take it out. Well, we have to acknowledge that many accusers couldn't file criminal charges against Cosby. Either the police departments didn't uh, believe them, district attorney's offices, and also statute of limitations. What are some of the stories of the women who did try to pursue charges? The few that did at the time, um, they were terrified of him, first of all. You have to understand, like, the, the victims he chose were not wealthy and powerful like him. He preyed on young, naive women who didn't have the resources to fight this and who didn't have the credibility if they went to the police and said, America's dad did this to me. That was one of the things that was so hard for them to go to the police in the first place. And then look what happened to Andrea Constant. She only waited a year when she did. All of this happens in 2005, then almost as quickly forgotten. Then about a decade later in 2014, something happened that made even more women start to go public about Cosby. They started to write op-eds. They went on television. Uh, there was a renewed momentum and a push for justice. Yes, it was like almost a perfect storm of things that happened in September 2014. Uh, Mark Whitaker had a new bio of Cosby out called Cosby and Cosby had cooperated with it and it was climbing the bestseller charts. But of course, there wasn't one mention of the sexual assaults in that book. Um, Cosby had a comedy special that was coming on. He was about to start a comedy tour. So that happened in Hannibal Burris, this young comedian, goes to Philly to perform at a club there. And he just does a, did a routine he'd been doing off and on for several months and in it where he calls Bill Cosby a rapist. And he says, if you don't believe me, go home and Google it. And what happened is a Philly mag reporter was in the audience and all of a sudden his ears perked up and he heard Bill Cosby, you know, and he knows 
Bill Cosby had always had this contentious relationship with young comics because he was always telling them not to swear. So he just starts filming with his iPhone. And then the next day in Philly Mag, he puts it online at the end of the day with a short story on there. And over the next few days, it just exploded and went viral. And um, Gawker picked it up. And just a bunch of the online news organizations had sprung up. And it went crazy on social media. And that was the big difference between 2014 and 2005 as far as why this case exploded. There was social media in 2014. There wasn't any in 2005. So Cosby was very good at controlling the media, and he, but he could not control social media. And this thing just kept building and building, and, and before too long, the mainstream media was forced to cover it too because then new accusers started coming forward. And as this is happening, the statute of limitations is about to expire on Andrea Constant's case. So in late 2015, a new Pennsylvania DA files those criminal charges against Cosby. There's a trial. The first one ends in a mistrial, but then a second one followed. And all of this is happening as the Me Too movement started to rise. How did Me Too play a role in the downfall of Cosby? I think the Me Too movement mainly affected the public's perception of these cases, just in the sense that if there's one accuser, there's usually more. And when it's a powerful person like this, especially when one comes forward, then another and another and another, and it snowballs. So I think it actually made people more likely to understand these cases and why women waited. You know, many sexual assault victims never go to the police. And when they do, it's usually delayed. Um, it's the most underreported violent crime. And that's that's what I think the big difference was, because all the jurors were screened about the Me Too movement and whether or not what they knew about it. And they if anyone expressed strong opinions either way, they were dismissed. They were not allowed to sit on the jury. In 2018, Cosby was convicted on three felony counts of aggravated indecent assault against Andrea Constant in 2004. Now, in 2021, it was all overturned. The Pennsylvania Supreme Court said Cosby cannot be retried on the same charges. So, Nikki, even today, Cosby has supporters who believe he's innocent. This includes Felicia Rashad, who played his TV wife, Claire Huxtable, on The Cosby Show and is now a dean at Howard University in D.C. How do powerful men like Cosby, who have long been accused of sexual misconduct, how do they keep their support for so long? Look what happens to you when you do go up against a Bill Cosby. Um, Cosby could control everybody around him. And it's just the power that they have is really unbelievable. And even with the media, because, you know, his agency also represents other celebrities. So if you don't um, behave and ask the questions they want you to ask of him, then you don't get access to all the other celebrities that this agency has. And like I said, and then there were modeling agencies that procured women for him. And it was an open secret in Hollywood. Thank you so much for this interview, Nikki. Sure. Coming up, a lawyer who has represented hundreds of sexual assault survivors explains why it's so difficult to get a criminal conviction against their perpetrators in court. John Manley is a legend in legal circles. The Southern California-based lawyer has won over $1.5 billion in settlements from organizations like the Catholic Church, the Boy Scouts of America, and the University of Southern California that have enabled and protected sexual predators. He currently represents about 220 gymnasts who say they were sexually assaulted by former USA Gymnastics National Team doctor Larry Nasser. John, welcome to The Times. Appreciate it. When it was announced that Bill Cosby's conviction was overturned, you wrote on Twitter, quote, This decision is legally incorrect and morally repugnant. 
Moreover, the Pennsylvania Supreme Court sent a clear message to those who would hold their rapists accountable. Stay quiet. Keep your rapist secret, because if you do speak, the law will not back you. I want you to break down that response into a couple of parts. So let's start with a legal argument. The argument is that when a prosecutor gives a defendant immunity, there's an immunity agreement. The problem with this supposed agreement, it was over a water cooler. Not literally, but I mean, that's really what it was, a water cooler agreement. Okay, will you testify in the civil case? Then, you know, we won't prosecute you, supposedly. The, the problem with it is that that agreement didn't exist in writing. There were discussions about it, but there was no written agreement. And the, the, the Pennsylvania Supreme Court said basically because he essentially said, I won't prosecute you for this and allowed Mr. Tosby to testify in the civil case, essentially they said you can't prosecute him. Um, the, the problem with that is, is that it, it really does, in my view, um, open up uh, a possibility that if a prosecutor leaves office, like somebody, for example, a former LADA leaves office, just basically says, oh, yeah, I had a discussion with the defense lawyer and we agreed not to do it, that, that, that the state can't prosecute him. That's not the way this should go. Why do you think the decision to overturn Cosby's conviction was morally repugnant? The idea that because the legal system can't get its act together and he gets to walk free and, and, and assert that, um, that he's uh, vindicated, which is total nonsense, he's not vindicated, um, I find morally repugnant. And I, and I think it shows what we see a lot. You know, if you're a wealthy or powerful person, you get one system of justice. I assure you, if Mr. Cosby was some guy in a bar who raped a victim, Mr. Cosby would not be getting out of jail, you know, if he was just nobody. Mr. Cosby had a team of lawyers. He could afford it. He made strong legal arguments, I guess, enough to convince the Pennsylvania Supreme Court and was able to get out. And the message that sends to survivors of famous people is you don't matter and don't come forward. And it's just very rare that you find a famous person that stays in jail. I mean, the only person I can think of that that actually has is Phil Spector, who died in jail. But I mean, you know, he had a, literally a smoking gun in his hand. I think that these men, and, it, and it's always men, believe they're above the law. And I, I think there's a pretty strong argument they are. John, uh, you know, you talk about the message sent to the victims and a lot of legal observers are saying that the Pennsylvania Supreme Court's decision was a right one, that it was a case of prosecutorial overreach and unconstitutional and that sexual assault survivors just understand that everyone's entitled to a fair process. Your response to that line of thinking? I agree that everybody's entitled to a fair process, but the, the victims should have a fair process, too, and it never seems to work out that way. I can remember Tony Rakakis in the Orange County DA's office when he had Father Michael Harris dead to rights in the late 90s, could have charged him. And Father Harris, as you know, Gustavo, is one of the most notorious pedophile priests in American history, didn't do it and let him go. Um, I can think of, you know, case after case where there is enough to charge these people and enough to convict them and DA's let him go. Um, Steve Cooley. Steve Cooley is a former district attorney of Los Angeles, and Roger Mahoney, of course, is a retired cardinal of Los Angeles. Yeah, I believe Mr. Cooley could have charged, and I've said this publicly, could, should have and could have charged rather Roger Mahoney. Cardinal Mahoney was systematically concealing pedophiles and putting him back in ministry where they went on to molest children. 
and he should have been charged. You couldn't even get the DA to, to lay a subpoena on him. You know, in the Nasser case, we've got all kinds of people at the U.S. Olympic Committee, people at the USA Gymnastics, people in the FBI who helped Larry Nasser get away with his crimes and, you know, molest hundreds of children after they knew and no one's been charged. And, you know, the, the, the message you're sending is very clear. And that message is you don't matter and we're not going to charge these cases. Um, and you wonder why the Me Too movement exists. It exists because prosecutors aren't doing their job frequently. Um, so the person, if anybody is to blame here in terms of the prosecutor, it's Mr. Castor for not charging him and doing some crappy agreement with Mr. Cosby that's very vague and that took away that victim's right to get her day in court and get justice and puts Mr. Cosby back on the street. John, you seem to be placing a lot of the blame on prosecutors, but isn't part of the problem is that their hands are also tied in doing all they can do to go after abusers? You know, my experience with prosecutors, and there's some notable exceptions, is that they won't charge these cases unless it's an absolute lock. And that's very different from other crimes. Um, Most of the time in L.A., they won't prosecute it unless you have the equivalent of a confession. That's unfortunate. I I think that, you know, we try these cases a lot. Now, our standard of proof is lower, but juries will believe victims. They do, especially somebody that's credible. If you really want to stop this, and it seems like we read about a teacher or somebody in a position of trust every day that does this, you have got to charge people. This isn't the first time you've seen a case in which people convicted of sexual assault were freed by a court decision. In 2003, the U.S. Supreme Court overturned a California law that had allowed for the prosecution of accused sex abusers as long as charges against them were brought up within a year of authorities being notified by survivors. I mean, you mentioned earlier Father Michael Harris, who admitted to molesting dozens of boys. You were representing some of those uh, victims. After that decision happened, what did you tell your clients? I told my clients that, that their only their only way to justice was the civil system. And, and you know, very frequently, um, that's where we end up. The vast majority of cases we try and settle, there are no criminal convictions. Um, a good example, it would be George Neville Rucker, who was a priest in the Archdiocese of L.A. who molested dozens of girls over 40 years, had criminal charges pending and were dismissed. Father Michael Kelly in the Diocese of Stockton, you know, we tried a case against him for 10 weeks. Um, there was a finding of liability and he fled on a plane to Ireland. No one would charge him. Um, I, I don't understand why prosecutors don't file these cases. And going back to the Nasser case, to give you a, the flip side, is that the local DA in uh, Lansing, Michigan, would not charge Larry Nasser, who, by the way, was Gretchen Whitmer believe it or not, before she was governor of Michigan. The attorney general, a woman named Angela Povolitis, an incredible prosecutor, prosecuted him when the feds and no one else would and was able to obtain a conviction, able to find the child pornography and did her job. Um, that's If it weren't for her and a uh, police sergeant of the Michigan State Police named Andrea Mumford, that would never have happened. He'd still be molesting Olympians today. In your position, you have clients who reach justice of sorts with a civil settlement, as you said, for their abuse and also see their abusers jailed, although rarely. But most of the times it's only a settlement and sometimes nothing happens. So when a survivor doesn't get the justice that they seek, what advice do you give them to be able to cope? 
Well, I, I, I can tell you the greatest healing for a survivor is to see their perpetrator cuffed up and taken into custody after a criminal verdict. There's nothing more healing. It's an outward sign that they are the victim, that their perpetrator is the person who did the crime, and that they don't have anything to be ashamed of. My advice to anybody who suffered a sexual trauma is to find a way through therapy and in your own life. Some people, you know, use spiritual uh guidance to do it, but is to find a way to give meaning to your suffering. And make no mistake, when I say suffering, I choose that word carefully because it is. Um, the people who find a way to give meaning to what happened to them do the best. So my advice would be to anybody who suffered a sexual assault is number one, call the police. Even if it happened many years ago, make a police report. And if they, they say they can't do it, make them do it. You have a right to make a police report. Believe me, if they're alive, they're still doing it. Second is to speak up and begin to talk about what happened to you um, and find a way to give it meaning. And for each person, that's different. Thank you so much for this interview, John. Thanks, buddy. Appreciate it. We reached out to Cosby spokesperson Andrew Wyatt for comment about the allegations in this episode and did not hear back from him in time for the release of this podcast episode. And that's it for this episode of The Times, daily news from the LA Times. Tomorrow, how the closure of a prison in Northern California might prove disastrous to the small town that's built its economy around it. Our show is produced by Shannon Lynn, Stephen A. Cuevas, and Denise Guerra. Our executive producer is Abby Fentress Swanson. Our engineer is Mario Diaz. Our editor is Shawnee Hilton. Our intern is Ashley Brown, and our theme music is by Andrew Eaton. I'm Gustavo Ariano. We'll be back tomorrow with all the news and desmadre. Gracias. <laughs>